This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I've got a fun segment right now. Uh, Well, fun and informative, I should probably say. Dave Jones, that's who we're going to be talking to. He's currently Chief Constable of the New Westminster Police Department. Uh, he's had, he's been in the department, led the department since 2011, uh, began his policing career back in 1982, was a volunteer, and then he, he became a full-time officer in 1986. Now, this is interesting, Dave, and I know you're on the line, and just yep. hang, hang out there with me for a second. So, worked in a variety of the sections, which I think is really, really interesting and important information. Uh within the police service. So patrol, major crimes, special op unit, drug section, community services, street crimes, as well as part of the joint forces operations uh, in their drug section, operational support unit, and street crimes unit. And I kind of feel like, Dave, you've, you've, you've seen it all. Yeah, it's, and it does feel that way someday. I bet it does. I bet it does. Now, the good news about that is that you have this amazing uh, foundation of experience and knowledge about uh, our specific topic that we're going to talk about with you, and that's financial scams and, and how people can protect themselves. And uh, before we get right into questions, etc., I just... I think I feel like we're living in a different time than we were certainly when you started in the force uh, today. I mean, I just feel like we're really vulnerable. You know, we we are right because what we're looking at here no longer is just this kind of local, if you want to call it, local scam going around, someone going door to door trying to sell you something. Now we're talking things that happen on an international level, right? They ha- it's you know who's knocking on your computer or your door per se is someone not even in the country, and uh, the stories and and different methods of trying to imitate um, valid or realistic companies is out there. It's a far more complex. And sometimes you don't even know. Sometimes you don't even know they're accessing you and your information. Well, that's the thing, too, right? We've moved into a digital world, and, uh, you know, people are storing, you know, banking information, personal information out in this, uh, you know, Internet world and digital world, and people are being able to access it and actually create you, become you. Yeah, and, and Dave, I was just, you know, leading towards this segment, I was really thinking, it seems like on a daily basis, um, there's at least some scam that hits my inbox, or I get a robocall, or I get something going on, and, you know, I know to ignore, delete, you know, hang up the phone and things like that, but it's almost on a daily basis, that's what we're looking at these days. And you're correct with that, and it, and no one is immune from it. It happens on a daily basis, all around, on a massive level, and I just use my own example. Last night, I got a a notice on my email indicating that apparently I was to update uh, an account of mine. <laughs> and I don't have that account with <laughs> exactly. that company, right? And, and, it's, and I certainly don't have it registered. And, and amazing enough, that came to my policing email. Wow. Not, not a personal email. That came to the police department. So <laughs> that those phishing scams aren't limited to just, you know, uh, targeting. It's a wide open blast. And that also makes me think that it's a real robotic kind of uh, machine that's behind that uh, to access somebody like you. Like, that's just dumb, right? 
Yeah, and and whether it's just uh, you know running random emails or picking up on emails that are going through the system that are seen as being valid ones, right? Yeah. So you know uh, you know my email and it's pretty simple at the work here. But whether it's copied or seen or you call it fished out of someone else's email box, they know it's a legitimate email, so they're sending it back. To, they're sending it out to everybody. Who falls victims to the to these scams, Dave? Who who do you tend to see? Is there a certain profiles at all walks of life, ages? Well. I would say all walks of life do fall victim to various scams, but in particular the ones that are of concern um, and probably the more vulnerable groups are um, the seniors that we see in the community in terms of it who um, I would say trust government organizations that are being imitated now right. and uh, and also you know, they're a, a very trusting group, right? They, they come across with that. And then there's other vulnerable sectors, I would say, that um, uh, have are targeted because they might not be as sophisticated or understanding or have access to resources to help them out to clarify certain things. Well, I think the other part of it, too, is that you just don't know if these people are legit or not. Like, we've, we've come across, and I know Blair has, where uh, if somebody's trying to collect money, for example, the kinds of methods that they use are very intimidating. And if you're a law-abiding citizen and have never had a record of any kind and you pay on time and you 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 know don't have any parking tickets or speeding tickets you just automatically think oh my gosh what what have i done wrong how can i how can i fix this i need to fix this immediately you know and that you're right on that and a lot of people now like some of these scams that are going on they they're actually becoming i say threatening uh, a very common very. one that's out there right now is say is the one using the CRA the yes. Canadian yeah. Revenue Association yeah we all seen that <laughs> yeah. and people are being told like you're going to be arrested we're going to come we're going to seize your house we're going to do this now people who are not familiar with that agency um, and how they operate or how the police operate with them is you know um, no one's going to come arrest you because you haven't paid your taxes, right? No one's going to make, make threaten to arrest you in case you didn't do it in terms of it. But the issue comes is that they're, the material they're putting out is actually imitates like letterhead and that. Exactly. Right. And you've got to be even further cautious because they'll give you a phone number to call, which mm-hmm. is actually linked to them. Yeah. Right? So, Can we talk about that specific yeah. scam? Because I know I just done a little bit of reading about it because it hit the sort of mainstream media a few weeks back and it was frightening what I heard. Right. And, and so that scam really is playing on people's fears, right? Paying taxes and, and the implications of not paying taxes or doing it right or wrong, and particularly if you make a mistake, scares people in that when they get noticed that, you know, you owe us money and therefore you need to pay right away. Um, I think there's still that whole almost a mythology about, you know, how you know, the CRA, or of course in the U.S., we see the Internal Revenue Service is this big, mm-hmm. scary monster, if you want to call it. And uh, so people become worried as to what's happening, because like, filing taxes is not always as, as easy as what we all think about, right? And so when you get this, you owe me money, and you need to do this now, or we will come arrest you or do things, that has really been something we've seen here in New West and even the other day talking to a banking institution in another city where a lot of people are coming in and withdrawing money to send to somebody through a money transfer system. So to you or I, I'm saying that's completely wrong. No one's going to ask you to withdraw cash and send it through a money transfer mm-hmm. system. But to some people, they're also afraid of, say, interacting with the law. The police, they're afraid they don't want the police to come to their house, that they're going to be in some form of trouble. 
And at the end of the day, you know, the, the, we try to drive this, and it's been going out, is there's no way the CRA acts in that way. They will send you correspondence. There's no way the police are going to come out and arrest you because you haven't paid your taxes, right, uh, or you owe something in terms of it. And never would there be a cash transaction with a, with a government organization like that. So it's difficult because we keep driving that message out there. And then we have to go further to warn them to say, you know, if you're going to ask for something or if you think something's suspicious or whatever, you know, hang up the phone and call them back. But don't ask for a number from them because right. it's so easy for them to give you a number, which is really ringing beside the person committing the fraud. Exactly. And that's the one that I was uh, thinking about specifically, that that one that, that they have, that they give you a number to call, to call your bank. You need to call your bank. This is the number. And so you call the bank. Or it's not even, they don't even give you the number, but they've already accessed your phone line in some way right. that then uh, they just continue to... Um, disguise themselves as that institution. Yeah, even their caller ID can show oh up as CRA, gosh. right? Oh my yeah. gosh, that <laughs> that's just frightening to me. Uh, I mean, and I'm a pretty knowledgeable, you know, aware person, um, and I get sucked in, and I really have to listen, or I really have to read something before I know for sure this is a scam. And one little one that I always find amusing is when I get the email from CRA, CRA and saying, dear taxpayer, and I thought of all the correspondence I've received from Canada Revenue, <laughs> they've never said, dear taxpayer. Taxpayer <laughs> to me before. Well, and people need to understand that they have, you know, CRA legitimately will have a lot of has a lot of personal information on you from social insurance numbers and stuff like that. But generally, you have a code with CRA, like a personal identifying number that only you'll be able to get from the CRA. And again, uh, you know, the big stress is that. There you, CRA is still generally going to communicate you through the mail. It's going to send it to you. And anything that comes in that you don't know about is, it's just simply you look up the number, you look up for the agency, and you ask them, don't call them and say, hey, I owe you money. How much can I confirm this? It is, I received some correspondence. What is it you're looking for, right, right? in terms of it? And by contacting them directly. And, you know, I had my own experience recently with my, uh, you know, I have an elderly parent, my mom, and she was in, involved with something with CRA. And uh, it was, although it was legitimate, it, it required, and some good thinking on her part was, not. She hung up the phone, called me, because yep. she's fortunate, I guess, to have a son in policing. <laughs> yes, and I'd I call you too, Dave. <laughs> and I simply told her she did the right thing, and I, and I phoned CRA back, and I was actually critical of them calling her in the way they did and what they were asking, but they got it, right? And, uh, and as it turned out, it was legitimate, but it took a bit to, you know, as, uh, as we try to talk to people, saying, when you get a phone call, just say no on the phone, hang up, and, and if it was your bank or... BC Hydro or someone, look up the number yourself and then call them and ask them if there's something they need to talk to you about. Excellent. Dave, what are some tips for someone to keep in mind, you know, or some warning signs of, of a scam? How does someone know, um, you know, that, that they might be at risk? Well, the first first thing is, is that you indicated there where it's like a dear taxpayer, where it's a non-personal mm. type address to somebody, where it's like, you know, hey, Mr. Ac- or dear account holder or subscriber. Um, the other one is, is is just unsolicited. Like, you know, if you've paid your bills to a corporation and you know you're paying your bills, is that all of a sudden you get something that looks suspicious in terms of it, um, it or it's unique that you never get correspondence from somebody, you suddenly receive that correspondence in terms of it, even though the letterhead in that may look legitimate. The other one, too, is, is where... Um, 
you know, you're going to look for, um, I would call, uh, foreign numbers, right, to return back to, or odd emails. You know, the, the government of Canada has a very, you know, set email structure in terms of how they how they respond. And they have, I think about it like the RCMP, where it's always rcmp-grc-gc.ca. I know that, right? And we become familiar with it. When it says, you know, www.scam.rcmp. <laughs> that's not a legitimate email address right. in terms of it. And the other one too is, is is this whole idea of asking you for money or funds, and and I think of this like in the um, lottery winning schemes, asking you to pay money or put up money for something that you're not familiar with. I mean, that is the first telltale sign, right? Hey, you owe me money. Hey, you owe us this. Or hey, pay this because you won that. These are the just generally, um, you know. I hate to say this, you shouldn't trust anything that comes to you unsolicited now in that a, manner. That's a really, really good point to start with. Certainly, yeah. we've been talking with Dave Jones. He's currently chief constable of the New Westminster Police uh, Department and has been since 2011. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. No problem. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. If you have any questions or want information about being in debt and how you can possibly help yourself out, sands-trustee.com is their website, or you can give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're talking about the financial challenges that seniors face today uh, and five good steps to help someone, uh, senior specifically, with a debt problem. And do you have a, like a, an age that you say a senior is? Because I don't know. Is there an age? <laughs> yeah, we usually pick age 60 and above. Okay. You know, Obviously, some people retire sooner, some later, but you know, around 60 or so okay. is our, our definition. Yep. So more and more Canadians are retiring with debt, retiring with debt. Uh, and I think that's so true um, just because of the the day and age that we're living in, right? Yeah. If it's a ho- like if it's a mortgage, would you fall, would that fall into that category? Oh, yeah. As well as consumer debt. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, some of the stats you know, are really shocking to me because most people think when you're hitting your senior years, you know, you're debt-free, um, you're getting a, a pension, but ideally you've saved a lot that you're going to be just fine. Yeah. Uh, but we've seen people bring debt into retirement and continue to accumulate debt in retirement. Um, you know, of our clients, 15% have outstanding credit card debt when they're senior citizens. Wow. Um, 18% of all personal bankruptcies actually involved people over 60. So one in five of the clients that we see um, are in their golden years, so to speak. Okay. So that so that's a surprise to me, yeah. but it doesn't sound like like that's an exceptional situation. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop being surprised. And because it's so important that if it feels like, you know, we're talking about you, then we've got so much good information for you and, and a good place to go to get some help mm-hmm. uh, with it in such a, you know, in a really great way. So I know there's some steps. So let's yeah. talk about those steps. Uh, the first one, uh, which is sometimes the hardest yeah. for me, I know it is, is uh, add it all up. Yes. Yeah, 
podcast. So it's really take stock of the situation. If you've been sitting there not opening your mail and it's and it's piling up, or if you're just looking at the statements, paying the minimum and moving on, um, you've got to really go a level deeper there. You've got to sit down and find out exactly how much is owed and to who. So there's collection agents calling. If you're not sure who it is, you know, maybe you want to pull a credit report, which you can do for free and see what's on there. But just start a list. Start out, you know, who is owed the money? how much um, and you know just just go from there we got to figure out what the situation is a few hundred dollars is obviously different than a few thousand is different than twenty thousand so you know how big is the problem and and to who so you can't deal with it until you know what the problem is right fair enough and then now that you know what your situation is uh, I guess I guess you have to make a plan right because you once you know knowledge is gold you, you want to take some action on it. Yeah. So once you've got all your debts listed out, um, just as you said, Elaine, you got to figure out a plan. Can you get out of this under your own steam? And a method we would recommend is you got to figure out how to put your debts in a priority order. And assuming you don't owe money to the government, because generally that would be your first debt, um, but you'd want to put your debts with the highest interest rate first. Okay. So, so that's how you determine the order. Yeah. So so take, take a list and then or, order it by interest rate mm-hmm. and then figure out what are the minimum payments required on each of those debts. Debts. And then I'd encourage you also to add an extra column, which is going to be on each of the statements. It's going to say how long to be debt free if we just make the minimum payments. Right. Which you're going to see, going to see now on all your credit bill, credit card statements, they're going to actually say how long it will take for this uh, balance to be paid off. Uh, paying the minimum payment. Right. Now, one thing, and this is kind of an insider tip here, but something that not enough people do is you can negotiate with your bank and it doesn't hurt you. It doesn't cost you anything. Uh, If you're trying to work out your debt repayments and the interest rates are really high, call the bank. Just say, you know what, I'm trying to get out from under this debt. Can we lower the interest rate? Can we do something? Sometimes the answer will be no, but sometimes you'll be very surprised. They might be willing to work with you for a period of time. So the person who would do that, would would that be if, if I just had one credit card debt and it was uh, just a little uh, unmanageable and then I'd take that action and phone the bank like who who would be the, who would be the best candidates to do that yeah I think you're right if it's a small number of debts and a relatively small amount something that you know if they lower the interest a bit you'll be able to pay it off a little bit faster and get out from under it so you know not if you owe eighty thousand dollars fifty thousand dollars a lower interest rate is probably not going to help you much if you're on pension right. income you probably can't make the minimum payments anyway but if the situation is not extremely dire it's a worthwhile thing to try right okay good so we've made a plan um I love the idea of asking for a reduction on interest because, as you said, like nothing ventured, nothing gained pretty much, right? Now, check for safety. What does that mean? Well, especially with with the senior citizen demographic, they're a huge target for scammers, fraudsters, for people that will promise and then not deliver anything other than, you know, um, bad dreams at the end of the day here. Um, So I've had a number of clients who um, they've had a telemarketer call them and say, you know what, we can help you out of debt. How do you even know I was in debt? Well, don't don't even worry about that, but we can help you out of it. Um, And so sometimes you'll pay money, you know, whether it's a few hundred dollars a month for a year for someone that you think is helping you with your debt, and then you figure out nothing's happened at all. So if you're a senior, if you're trying to help a senior get out of a debt situation, uh, if they're paying an intermediary, ask some hard questions. So ask questions like, how is this person licensed? You know, is there a federal government body that oversees this? How am I guaranteed that I'm getting results? Are there legal contracts in place or is it governed by legislation? And what happens if something goes wrong? Who can I complain to? Is there some dispute 
uh, dispute resolution mechanism for just about anybody that's unofficial. They'll have very poor answers to those those types of questions. Right, and and we know that there's so much information that's available out there uh, on their websites to look these organizations up. And if the answers aren't there, then that's the key, right? That you know that they're not reputable people to be dealing with, and you need to move on, not answer their calls or... Yeah. 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 And, you know, for anybody, we just recommend, you know, look around, maybe look at two or three different solutions rather than, you know, falling for the first one that, that falls into your lap. Especially if, if they contact you, Exactly. Right? If, if it's an outbound call, that's your first big warning sign. So myself, as a, as a licensed insolvency trustee, I'm prohibited from ever soliciting clients, doing outbound calls, asking somebody, you know, for work. They've got to come to me. They've got to realize they need the service and reach out. And that's what most reputable situations w- would be. Yeah, that's a really good idea. That's, that's a really good reminder. Find the source. So pinpoint the reason for having accumulated the debt in the first place. Yeah, so why are wow, we here? so easy, but so complicated and big sometimes. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's it's a small symptom of a very big problem. Um, so gambling is definitely sure. something that I see in the senior citizen demographic. Um, and these are often the people that have the highest debts, but with nothing to show for it because they haven't been out purchasing anything. They haven't been living, you know, high on the hog. They've been unfortunately in the throes of a gambling addiction. Right. Um, so when you start to look at all that, that's together and you can't figure out why, it causes you to to start to ask those next level questions of how is the person spending their time and is there an issue there? Yeah. Um, So, you know, that's one that we see a lot. But, you know, another could be just, hey, they're working a couple of jobs and the employers don't know to take off enough tax. So unless you go to the employer and say, hey, deduct more on an an ongoing basis, every year the senior is going to have a tax issue and, you know, four or five years of $2,000 a year of excess taxes, well, suddenly you're $10,000 plus in debt to the government and maybe they're starting to garnish your pensions. Yeah, you, you and, a growing, real problem. R- and growing. And growing, right? That $10,000 is growing. Yeah. And the other piece is, and I, and I think this is important because uh, sometimes it is to no fault of their own yeah. that they're in this situation. Yeah. So, you know, two, two big situations that we see, you know, one is medical issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, quite often someone didn't want to retire as early as they had to, you know, life intervened, they got sick or a family member got sick right. and their best laid retirement plan suddenly went out the window because they just couldn't work anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that can be a, a big challenge. Um, you know, another one that, that we see um, is quite often many people, they never stop supporting their children. Right. Um, so no matter how old they are, they're always your kids and, you know, always your grandkids too. Uh, so I sometimes have clients in my office and when I look at their budget, it's more than half is going, you know, to pay grandkids cell phone bills or to help mom and dad out with rent. And, you know, where the person is literally living in poverty, trying to help the rest of their family out. Um, You know, if it's the debt payments, I can help with that. But with the family support, there's sometimes a harder conversation that needs to happen. Absolutely. And grandchildren seem to get their way with grandparents often and they bypass the parents altogether, right? That can happen. Yeah, Yeah, I've I've seen it happen. Listen, I, I think the key right now is if any of this information is resonating with you. Uh, either you hear yourself being described or you hear uh, someone you know being described in any of the things that we've talked about. Uh, Sands and Associates, they're such good people and you get a free consultation. All you have to do is call them and then and have a sit down with someone like Blair can talk about your situation and then say, okay, maybe this these are the couple of steps that you could make and, and might not have anything to do with a consumer proposal or bankruptcy but just some other good information that you're lacking right now. You're listening to Dollars and Cents.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Kate Flanders. Now, Kate, a a described former binge consumer turned mindful consumer of everything. And through a lot of personal stories, she wrote about what happens when money, minimalism, and mindfulness mindfulness cross paths. Kate's story's been shared a lot of places. Oprah.com, Forbes, Yahoo, The Guardian. We're so happy to have you with us, Kate. It's just, oh, I'm really looking forward to this piece. Oh, my gosh. Thank you guys so much for having me. And I just want to mention your blog address, uh, www.kateflanders.com, and Kate is spelt C-A-I-T. Now, Kate wrote a book. It's called The Year of Less. It's a self-help memoir that documents her life for the first 12 months of a two-year shopping ban. I want to repeat that. Shopping (laughs) ban. Yikes. Uh, Kate lives in Squamish with her three loves, and I love this piece, Mountains, the Forest, and the Ocean. Nothing wrong about that. (laughs) Nothing wrong about that on this beautiful part of the country, for sure. So let's start with some questions about uh, The Year of Less, uh, the the title of the book that you wrote. Um, Often authors will talk about a, a, a specific piece or a specific event or idea or thought that literally propelled them into the idea that I should write this down and it should be a book. How How did that come about for you? Oh, like the actual book? Yeah. Um, I'll be honest and say that it was actually uh, never part of the plan. Like yeah. I have, I have been blogging since 2011, and it, um, yeah, it was just never, never part of the plan to write a book. I used to write anonymously. Like when I first started my blog in 2011, I was maxed out with close to thirty thousand dollars of debt, and I wrote anonymously because I didn't want anyone to read it. Hmm. Um, that changed over time. Like after I'd paid off the debt, I felt much more comfortable, kind of. Um, using my real name and putting my face on the on the website, but I, um, you know, when I took on the shopping ban, it was still just very much meant to be like kind of a personal experiment that I was going to do. And it wasn't until after I finished it that um, I did an interview with someone I knew um, through a job, like years years before, and we. She actually wrote a profile about the piece for Forbes, which she was writing for at the time. And when the date came out, she sent me an email saying, just FYI, these things have a tendency to go viral. (laughs) And I just thought nothing of it because, I mean, I didn't know Laura well, but I had worked with her for a little while. She was an editor of mine at one point. So I really thought nothing of it. And then within two weeks, I had been contacted by six different literary agents. Um, with all of them thinking it could be a book. So then I was just really grateful that I had documented some of it on the blog. And I think Blair, who I know, I I have not read your book, only because for no other reason than I just haven't, but Blair has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what a gift. Yeah, I was explaining to to Elaine, I was traveling when I read the book, and, you know, it just really caused me to pause a bunch of times and, you know, ask myself th- those bigger questions about, you know, who am I consuming for? And, you know, what, what's this, this benefit that I'm getting from all the consumption from it from a day to day? But I wonder for sharing with listeners here, Kate, can you tell us, you know, how did you structure structure um, the rules about, about the shopping ban? Yeah, so uh, there were basically two or two lists that I wrote. Um, and so the first one was honestly, like, just we could call it consumables. Mm-hmm. So things like groceries, um, obviously putting gas in my car. So and okay to buy stuff. Uh, yeah, th- yeah, yeah, all this stuff's good to buy. So that stuff's okay. Um, even like going to restaurants sometimes, totally fine. Toiletries, like as you use them up, mm-hmm. totally fine. Like the things that you use often, 
you're allowed to buy like as you need more. So you don't have um, a closet full of toilet paper or paper towels, that kind of thing, right? That's not part of this. Yeah, exactly. Hoarding <laughs> paper products. No. Um, and then I wrote the list of things I was not allowed to buy. And that was structured basically from me walking around my home and looking at the stuff I already owned and really just saying like, I have enough of this. So, I found that fascinating. Um, so what were some of the things on, on that list? Yeah. So like clothes, um, shoes, things were around the house, um, books, magazines. Like I just, I had stuff. It's not even that I had a lot. I wouldn't have even sort of, I don't know, even if you'd walked into my home, it's not like it was a totally cluttered mess or anything. Like I just, I had enough. I didn't need more. Um, And then the only caveat to that was that I did write a short list, again, kind of looking ahead, knowing I was doing this for an entire year. Um, and I wrote this short list of a few things I would be allowed to buy throughout the year. And like an example was um, I had five weddings to attend that year. Okay. And I don't really own the kinds of clothes that I would wear to a wedding. Like I just don't really dress up ever. It's just not who I am. And so I was like, I can buy one outfit, so like one dress, one pair of shoes to wear to all of the weddings. Okay. Um, so some things like that. And you must have bought gifts for these people who got married? Yes, that was also, again, I never wanted the shopping ban to affect other people. Nice. Um, so that was also, that was fine. Yeah, because I guess you were trying to, to prove the point that, you know, the, the purpose of life, not to give away the book, but, you know, a lot of the, the enjoyment is not not what you have to buy, not what you spend money on. Um, so I think one of your, your points there was you could do a shopping ban and actually have a more meaningful life than, you know, have your life suffer for that. Would, would that be correct? Yeah, and I think, like... It wasn't, um, or something I really want to say is like, I don't think buying stuff is bad or spending money is bad. And actually, I would almost really encourage us to kind of start removing some of the shame around the things that we are buying. Like, you guys know, personal finance is so personal. So Mm -hmm. we can't really judge like what people are spending money on. But I think inside, we know personally what we're getting fulfillment out of or not. And sometimes it is stuff. Like sometimes stuff really helps us with the things that we love. So, or or you just really like it. And like, if it's in your budget, that's okay. As long as you're using it. I think for me, it was just really realizing I had never questioned purchases. I just bought stuff thinking it would somehow help me or help my life in some way. And, and I just had to let go of that. Like I really had to learn how to sort of stop buying impulsively or also preemptively, like thinking I'm going to fix something in the future. Mm. Um, and just buy like when I've actually felt a need for something and then and then knowing it's for the real me and I'm actually going to use it. Is Was there a bit of a process that you went through, like f- three questions or four questions that you asked yourself, whether the piece stayed on the list or if you were ac- actually in the store and you were tempted to buy it? Like, was there a bit of a process for you with each thing? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I for most things, I just knew like, if I kind of saw something and, or I found myself in a situation where I was thinking of buying something, I could pretty quickly talk myself out of it just being like, you don't need that. Like it's on the list. And I would also consider my blog too, being like, I don't want to have to write a blog post that says I gave in and I oh, responded. Good. Stuff. So, <laughs> so I'm not going to buy these things because I genuinely don't need it. And I don't want to tell anyone. Right. I'm not going to do it. That's excellent. <laughs> and, uh, but no, I think that having accountability helped. I also think that there were some things like it did come back to if I had felt a need for it, like there were a couple things throughout the year that like life happens and you do need things. And it was just really coming to a place of 
learning how to say like, have I actually felt the need for this? Like, did I walk into the store for this thing or is something just making me think like, what kind of stories am I telling myself right now to maybe justify it? What about challenges, Uh, challenges that you didn't expect to come up that did? Yeah. So I think the the big one and and Blair will know this from reading is that, um, so something that I'll just go backwards slightly and just say that something that um, I hadn't thought of before starting the band was that in the same time period that I was paying off my debt, I also stopped drinking. Mm. And I think that I had never really understood how um, how much I used drinking as a coping mechanism for so many things. And then because it wasn't there, it's not that surprising to me that when sort of more personal challenges came up throughout the year of the shopping ban, it made me just want to spend because I knew I wasn't going to drink. Right. But spending feels like the next easiest thing to do. And so I I thought a lot about it. I went through a breakup that year and thought a lot about buying things that would just make me feel better. Yeah. Um, and I also found out my parents were getting divorced that year. And that was a very, like, it was just a personal struggle. But in those situations, definitely found myself or just realized I was a much more emotional consumer than I had ever realized. And I really in, enjoyed re- reading the book, Kate, because it was it was not what I expected, as, as you just alluded to. It was more of a, a personal memoir and really you fighting through a number of challenges. Um, and, you know, you and I spoke before the segment, but, you know, I quit drinking about four years ago and I went through a lot of the same type of, um, you know, challenges that, that you were mentioning about. You don't have that as a coping mechanism anymore. Yeah, and it's so, I, I just think it's one of those things that it's not like every person who reads the book needs to have gone through our shared experience, but I think it it really just shows that as, as unfortunate as it is, I think like money and, and all of this stuff, like it's a lot more emotional than we maybe would, would like, <laughs> like yeah. but, it, but it really is. And so there was so much that year that going through this stuff, I really realized I was an emotional consumer. I didn't have alcohol to help me anymore. And so spending just felt like what I, like the, the easiest and, and sometimes doesn't feel that harmful, like in the moment when you're going to make those decisions, because it, you know, there's like science, like it does feel good to spend money sometimes. Mm -hmm. It does feel good. Like, but that, that it doesn't help long term and neither did drinking. So right, that's really quite something, Kate, that you, that this was, this was your journey that you went through. And it started as one thing and evolved into something else. I think that's really, really fascinating. Well, and I think for me now, I sort of look at personal challenges like that in general, like it's, it's, um, you can never know what the end result is going to be. Like, you just can't. And I'm actually really glad that I walked into it a little bit blindly and almost like naively of just like, oh, this is just going to be this year where I, my goal is to like spend less and save more. Sure. Um, and, and finish it. And like, yes, I could say that those things were true, but it, um, yeah, it, it, it did become about so much more than that. And I'm so grateful too that I was able to, like write the book that agents did see an interest in it and stuff like that because um, it's actually funny. I would say the majority of people wanted it to be more of like a how-to book, mm-hmm. something more of you know I don't know. Here's ten ways to do this. Um, but for me, I was always very adamant. Like if this is going to be a book, it has to be more of a memoir. Like it has to be more personal. I don't want to just write like ten ways to not shop. Like no, I could I could write that in a blog post. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. You have the whole blog that you can that you were able to use to sort of the daily stuff or the weekly stuff that would come up. Uh, so that yeah, that makes good sense, and it just feels so personal. And the cool thing is, and I bet you've experienced this when you've heard from people, is that 
loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of people have those same those same thoughts, those same ideas, that those same pauses uh, before either purchasing something or doing something that they know they're just doing to, I don't know, deal with this other thing that has nothing to do with what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and like now a common thing I'm hearing from people is one part particular in the book where I just mentioned that I realized I used to buy a lot of things for this more like aspirational version of myself. Uh-huh. The number or like probably one of the most common things I hear from people is I had never realized that until I read that sentence. Excellent. Like that that is what they were doing too. Very good. We've been talking with uh, Kate Flanders, who's written a really interesting book. It's called The Year of Less. It's a self-help memoir that documents her life for the first 12 months of a two-year shopping ban. Uh, Kate lives in Squamish, so not very far away. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services that we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. This surprised me, Blair, this statistic. Mm -hmm. You said four in ten couples which is almost half of all couples who are married or in a common law relationship say they brought debt with them into the relationship. Yeah, so not quite a majority, but definitely a very strong, strong demographic. Almost a lot 50%. of people. Well, but that's our life, right? The fact of life is just about everybody is in debt these days. You know, whether it's a student loan, whether it's a little credit card balance or something like that, uh, you're in the minority if you're debt free, from my point of view. Yeah. So I guess, and the good news about that is, I think, is that one of the things that happens with people who are in debt feel really alone and isolated and all that. And that's the good news, is that you're not. No. no, Not alone at all. You're absolutely not. Um, You know, even you might be a far, far shade away from ever having to go bankrupt or do a consumer proposal. But almost everybody at some point in their life will find themselves with a little bit of debt and have to decide, you know, how do I get myself out of this? Excellent. And when you're dealing with a couple, uh, what I want to do in today's segment is really point out, you know, some really key things. Maybe there are some assumptions people make, and if they're longtime listeners of ours, Elaine, they know some of these things already, uh, but there's some assumptions people make when they when they start to couple up and combine finances that sometimes are to their detriment, and the facts are actually a little bit different than what some people assume. And I think the other piece of it, too, is a lot of these things that we're going to talk about uh, don't necessarily just pertain to new people, to mm-hmm. new couples, but if there's something that you hear that we talk about and you go, oh, I don't think that exists in my relationship, that might be something to think about. Mm-hmm. Way to introduce it. Yeah, because, you know, definitely, and this is uh, true for couples as well as individuals, debt is a source of stress. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not a source of peace and calm and things like that. No. You know, if you owe money, it's an obligation. And the more obligations you have, especially if you can't meet them, that's when your stress level starts to go up. And some research that, that we've done yes. um, is, you know, one in three couples um, feel that debt is a major source of their stress. So, you know, two thirds don't, but a solid one third um, debt is something that, you know, maybe they're fighting about or feeling despondent about. That's the other thing, and we know that stress can look uh, d- it, all kinds of ways, yep. in a rela- especially in a relationship. So let's talk about a couple of things to do. 
I love this one. Communicate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I get accused of communicating too much. Oh. <laughs> I'm teasing. And I get the opposite. So <laughs> there you <laughs> so, go. So there you go. Sort of a yin and a yeah. yang of it. But especially with money, the communication discussion around money, especially the first few, it's never easy. No. Um, because people come from very different backgrounds, very different levels of financial literacy, and also very different you know, opinions about, shall we say, what's polite conversation and what's not. And how even the couple is set up in terms of who's making who's mm-hmm. making more money yeah. than the other person. I mean, sometimes that that's the case, and sometimes not. Sometimes everybody's making the same amount. Mm-hmm. But I would say there's probably always a difference, right? Yeah, it's very rare that you find somebody perfectly fifty fifty. And two doctors, two lawyers, two yeah, dentists. It does maybe. exist, but it's yeah. a minority. Right. Um, but you know, a lot of times there is a mismatch, and sometimes one member of the couple can think, well, you know, if the other person's earning ninety percent of the of the income, let me just let them worry about everything and plan everything out and I don't really need to be involved in things. Yeah. Um, and that can be incredibly risky, especially if you know it's a long-term couple and then one of the partners passes unexpectedly. And if you're the person who's never paid attention to anything, you can have a real challenge even trying to pick up the pieces and administer an estate. Yeah. And it's not necessarily the uh, stereotypical 1950s version is the man is making all the money and no. the woman is at home making, you know, doing all the domestic stuff. That just isn't the case anymore and hasn't yeah. been for a long, long time. Oh, yeah. So more and more, it's it's the, the inverse. That the, yeah. the, the female is, is doing a little bit better. Yeah, you know? so it's not gender-specific at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the second piece of that is the honesty with your partner about the financial situation. And, and that can be a tough one, especially if you've been together for a long time. Yeah. Not just a new amount of time or, you know, a short amount of time, but a long time. Yeah, this one, and this is something, you know, we recommend every couple does. And definitely, um, you know, I I think it is easier earlier on. um, But it's if you really want to share some financial intimacy um, is each of you pull your credit reports. And mm. you can do this for free. We've got links on our website at sandstrustee.com. Um, pull your credit reports and sit down and review them both together. And then you're looking, I'm going to assume, at apples and apples and oranges and yeah. oranges, right? Yeah, the formats are going to be the same. You're going to see all the accounts you know, reporting there. And if you've been honest and straightforward with the other person, there's going to be no surprises for each of you. And then what you're going to see is, okay, here's what we're dealing with. Now, another big benefit too is I've rarely seen a credit report that doesn't have at least one inaccuracy. So probably as added benefit of this is both you and your partner are going to figure out, hey, there's a weird address here. There's a weird job. You know, there's a weird account. Let's get this thing cleaned up before it potentially causes us problems a little bit later. Okay. And so it is important to have um, a really accurate credit report. Yeah. It's your record of your financial life, uh, financial life. And it does matter because it determines, you know, are you going to be able to get um, financing and at what rate? But it's something that changes over time. So even if somebody's got a very poor credit rating or you get their credit report and it's a bunch of, you know, delinquencies and skipped out on this and so on and so forth, at least you know what base you're building from and you can turn it around from there. People can literally go from horrible credit, you know, going through a bankruptcy and everything like that to turning things around and getting a mortgage in as little as a couple of years, two to three years. Right. And so nothing's nothing's a life sentence when it comes to credit. Okay. And more than you and I are going to be looking at it if we're married. It's Mm -hmm. something that other people can access before they give us a hand with oh, something. Oh, of course, you're going to finance a vehicle or ask for more credit somewhere. Yeah, they're going to they're going to do a credit check on you. So, you know, we really encourage it relatively early on in a relationship is, you know, let's put all the cards on the table. But even if you've been together for years and neither of you have ever pulled your credit, um, do it and see, is it accurate? And then also share both reports together. See, and that's the other thing too, as you mentioned, that the, there's always inaccuracies in those reports. Yeah. And it's really important to get it cleaned up. Because yeah. if there's a bunch of stuff that just isn't true, either 
period or any more, then yeah. that's worth the time. Well, and the time to clean it up is not when you're at the mortgage broker's office ready to sign the documents, because I've had those calls and I've said, yeah, you can send in an inquiry, but you know, I'm not the credit bureau's client and neither are you. It's the banks. They're not going to jump when, when we call them. So it's going to take probably weeks to get something cleared up. Okay. You need to make sure you leave enough time, not, you know, the 11th hour before something has to be signed. One of the, and the third, the third one on the do part of the, of the conversation is understand what you owe and what you don't owe. What do you mean by that? Well, so this is what we were alluding to a little bit earlier, Elaine, is, you know, a lot of people think if you marry somebody, you marry their debt. And, you know, if, I, if I've married somebody that got a massive student loan, if I've got some money, why don't I just help and pay down that student loan? We're better off as a couple. Mm-hmm. The facts are, legally, there's no automatic liability. So repeat again, if you marry somebody, you do not owe their debts at all. So if somebody's got a MasterCard or a Visa debt, MasterCard or Visa can never collect from the other spouse. They can only collect from the person that originally borrowed the money. And I've seen so many couples sit down and just start to pool their finances right away. And sometimes they'll you know, have one person with a bunch of debt and one person with a bunch of assets, and they'll end up at zero because the one person used all their assets to pay the debts. Whereas if they knew that you know the other person with the assets is not liable for this debt whatsoever, the person who has all the debt might have done a consumer proposal, might right. have paid back a third of the debt or a quarter of the debt. Debt. Yeah. Or maybe bankruptcy was the answer for them to get them back to zero. But the couple as a whole, the partner who had the assets, is not required to surrender them or compromise their stability um, to provide for the other partner for debt that's brought into the relationship. That's a really important piece, isn't it? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one other side of this, and you know, this is if a relationship is breaking up, then there can be some liability for joint debt. So you'd want sure. to, you know, talk to a lawyer and things if you're going through that tough situation. Right. But absolutely, if you owe somebody money and you get into a relationship, it does not become owed by the other spouse. Now, two things that you say you shouldn't do, and we just have about a minute left, yeah. uh, playing the blame game. Don't play the blame game. Nothing to be gained, right? <laughs> if you just increase the guilt, increase the shame the other person is already feeling, all you're going to do is guarantee that the next time there's a very touchy situation, they're probably not going to want to even discuss it with you. I think marriage counseling is probably the next best step in that particular situation. That would make sense. Yeah, these are universal. Right? Bad, right? Yeah. Such a bad thing to do. Yeah. And um, the second piece of it, suffer alone or in silence. Yeah, there's, there's help out there. So don't suffer alone. Don't think you're the only person or the only couple that's experiencing these situations. Any licensed insolvency trustee will meet with you at no charge for a consultation and can work out a plan that's going to help you as a unit be better off. I can't help stress too with uh, Sands and Associates website. It's so good. Sands-trustee.com. There's so much good information. A lot of frequently asked questions, scenarios, situations that you can look up. My my bet is that you're going to see yourself in some of those places uh, when you start going through it. And then if you feel like, no, I need to talk to somebody, it's nice and easy to do. 1-800-661-3030 to get that first free consultation, uh, as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.